Well, last time we were together in Genesis, uh, the sermon had to do with the fall of mankind into sin. Remember, Genesis 3 is very pivotal in, in the entire Bible for that fact. And so today, we want to carry on and we'll learn some effects of sin. There are consequences to sin. And to illustrate it, I found a, humor, a very humorous recall notice that is applicable here. You know what a recall notice is, I, I assume. Uh, sometimes responsible companies will send these out. Let's say uh, a car company might say they're recalling a certain number of cars because there's a certain fault with an airbag or whatever, right? And so they don't want people being injured and them being responsible. So they'll recall them and fix the problem. Well, you can you can imagine what kind of recall notice uh, if God had done this sort of thing, what it would look like. As I mean, think about it. He makes his creation in Genesis 1 and 2, and, and it comes to the end. And what did God say? It was very good. <laughs> and then we come to Genesis chapter 3, and now it's a mess. So here's what the recall notice says. The maker of all human beings is recalling all units manufactured regardless of make or year. Due to the serious defect in the primary and central component of the heart. This is due to a malfunction in the original prototype units codenamed Adam and Eve. Resulting in the reproduction of the same defect in all subsequent units. This defect has been technically termed subsequential internal non-morality. Short S-I-N, sin. Subsequential internal non-morality. Some other symptoms are the loss of direction, foul vocal emissions, (laughs) amnesia of origin, lack of peace and joy, selfish or violent behavior, depression or confusion in the mental component, fearfulness, idolatry, and rebellion. The manufacturer, who is neither liable nor at fault for this defect, is providing factory-authorized repair and service free of charge to correct this sin defect. The repair technician, Jesus has most generously offered to bear the entire burden of the staggering cost of these repairs. The number to call for repair is 0800-P-R-A-Y-E-R, prayer. (laughs) So, while that's humorous, we thank God for the work of Christ in fixing our greatest problem. You can turn to Genesis chapter 3 if you're not there already. We want to look at God's Word. What does God's Word have to say from Genesis 3, starting in verse 7? Verse 7. Then the eyes of both, that's Adam and Eve, were opened, and they knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, 
Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and the flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. That ends chapter 3. So here is the theme from this text today. We will see that sin has consequences, but God is gracious. Yes, sin has great consequences. That's one of the things that Genesis 3 teaches us here. Turn there, please, Danny. Sin has consequences. So we see, as soon as Adam sinned against God, he began to suffer some serious consequences from his transgression. Let me just highlight a few here for you. We see, first of all, that there's knowledge. See, the Bible says in verse 7, the eyes of both were opened. Did you remember what Satan had promised them? Oh, if you eat from this fruit, you will be enlightened. (laughs) He promises them enlightenment. But however, what happens Their eyes were not enlightened, but they were opened. They acquired no advanced knowledge, nothing that was actually pleasant, nothing that was profitable for them. Instead, their eyes were opened to some evil, to distressing things. Sad to say, my friends, Satan has no desire to bring you pleasure. He always overpromises and under delivers. 
And he, he loves to deceive us, and you need to be aware of his tactic, mixing in half-truths, so to speak. And, and as a result, what happened here? We have lost communion with God. It's a tragedy, a great tragedy. So, knowledge happened. Number two, shame. One of the consequences of sin is shame. See, verse 7 says they knew that they're now naked. They didn't seem to know that before. Uh, They felt things that they had never known and felt before. They were able to walk with God in perfect communion with Him and talk with Him in the garden. So what did they lose? They lost their innocence. And for the first time, they're, they're now looking at each other, man and woman looking at each other, with no longer innocent eyes, but corrupt eyes. And so guilt engulfs them. Shame embarrasses them. Fear terrifies them. And hatred arises within them. Hatred arises within them. Verse 12 says, look what the man says, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. He's not loving his wife as he should, obviously, by saying those kind of statements. There's great shame, but number three, there's, there's self-help. Self-help is a consequence of sin. Notice what they're doing in verse 7. They're sewing fig leaves together, and they make themselves a loincloth. So what are they trying to do? They're trying to quiet their noisy soul. They're trying to squash... Their consciences, by the way, God made consciences in us. And they're covering their nakedness, and they're trying to get rid of this shame, but obviously they can't. They can't. And so then they experience fear for the first time. That's the fourth consequence, is fear. We see in verses 8 through 10 that Adam and his wife hid themselves from God. That's the fourth consequence. So what does sin do? Sin, sin makes sinners want to hide. We want to hide from God. Sometimes we want to hide from each other. And when they heard God's voice, what did they do? They ran. You think about it. How foolish is it to run from God? Can anybody run from God? No. <laughs> Many people have tried. Even one of God's prophets even tried that, didn't he? Jonah. God tells Jonah to go east, Jonah goes west. And so God brings a storm, and he gets thrown overboard, and so God takes him back east through some sea creature that swallows him and regurgitates him up on the land, and finally Jonah obeys. would have been much easier if we just all obeyed to start with instead of running from God, because God is all presence. Even in the belly of a fish, Jonah would have experienced God. And so the second reason it's foolish to run from God is because we actually increase our misery when we do so. You're actually increasing your misery. See, fear can cause us to do very irrational things sometimes. It can be helpful, but sometimes irrational. And so our sin should cause us to run to God, but instead, what are they doing? They're running away from God. Think about it. He's the only one who could help them anyway. So they should have been running to him. So fear is a consequence of sin. And then number five, self-preservation. And sadly, self-preservation 
at everyone else's expense here, if you look at verse 12, we, we again, notice what's Adam doing. He's blame shifting. He's trying to preserve himself by saying, uh, God, it's really your fault because it, you're the one who gave me this woman, so it's your fault. Adam's, or sorry, Eve's blame shifting. Uh, look what, look what, in verse 13, then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And then the woman points at the serpent and says, the serpent deceived me, therefore I ate. There's all this self-preservation at everyone else's expense going on here. Blame shifting, you might call it. Ultimately, of course, God's in charge, so he's the one to blame, so to speak. But you know what real men do, and real women for that fact? Real men, in particular, accept responsibility. Take the consequences for what comes. But that's not what Adam's doing here. He's blame-shifting. Self-preservation is one of those nasty consequences of sin. And then the sixth consequence of sin is God's curse. And, And it comes to each one of the people involved here. We see, first of all, the serpent was cursed. Uh, from verses 14 and 15, you can see God's curse upon the serpent. So we see, first of all, there was isolation for the serpent. God says, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts. So the serpent is, is somehow, in some way, singled out and, and separated from the other parts of God's creation. lesson to be learned in this is that sin always alienates us. It makes us alone in the universe. The serpent also experiences humiliation as a part of God's curse because God says, on your belly you shall go. Some kind of a body change was a part of the curse here. Some have pondered, well, did the, did the snake uh, like some kind of somehow walk upright maybe or did it have legs? I don't know exactly what it looked like, but it obviously it changed in some way. You say, why? Well, the serpent had lent its body to the evil one, Satan. So it's being cursed. What was the, one of those consequences? Notice, God says the serpent would eat dust. Eat dust. Now, if you say that to somebody, that is not a compliment. Now, in Hebrew... The Hebrew mindset, the Hebrew way of thinking, eating dust was an expression of, of the deepest degradation and ruin. It was not a compliment. It, it, was, it was something terrible in their mind. And that's what God is saying to the serpent here. Have you ever wondered why people hate snakes? Many people hate snakes. It, it just freaks them out, right? They don't want to touch them. It, they get the eebie-jeebies, you know, from snakes. Well... God doomed the snake to be the the visible representation of the kingdom of darkness on earth. Concerns me when people like snakes. They have been cursed by God. (laughs) Because that snake, that serpent, lent its body to the evil one. But the woman was also cursed. (laughs) She's responsible. In verse 16, we see, first of all, there's 
psychological trauma coming upon the woman, God says, I will surely multiply your pain. See that verse 16? It will surely multiply your pain. But there's also physical trauma, uh, in, particularly in childbearing. I can't empathize, but uh, I've seen three children born. So I know a little bit, very little. For Eve, the bearing of the children will become a difficulty. And the pains will eventually threaten her very life. And many people over the centuries have died from giving birth to children. And still do, don't they? Yeah. But there's also an ongoing leadership struggle that God mentions here as a part of this curse of sin. Because God told the woman, your husband shall rule over you. Now, this is a picture, by the way, of slavish dependency and a a despotic tyranny. It's not the way it was meant to be. Uh, Man's original structure of headship was to be a a glorious thing, a good thing. Uh, Remember, God said it was all good, but it's replaced by a degrading form of rulership due to the curse, due to sin. So Adam's original leadership over the woman prior to sin was never intended to crush the woman he was to care for his wife to love his wife to nurture his wife look after her needs and protect her now it's there's this ongoing leadership struggle within humanity we have the rise of feminism all of that's just a part of the curse of sin Well, man doesn't get off the hook here. Man was also cursed in verses 17 through 19. We see, first of all, there's barren soil. For you farmers and gardeners who struggle and you think, well, I don't have a green thumb. That's right, you don't. (laughs) The ground and the soil you work with has been cursed. Because notice God says, cursed is the ground. So Adam's sin has affected all of creation, not just the serpent, not just the woman and not just man, but even creation itself. And now we have hostile plants as a part of the curse. Because notice what God says here. He says, the thorns and the thistles, it shall bring forth. Don't you just love thorns and thistles? Well, Adam's occupation was cursed. Remember, God had made him a gardener, a farmer. He was to be a keeper of this garden now his occupation's cursed thorns and thistles every time you see them and you're picked pricked by them and you spray them let it be a reminder of nature that is untamed and is encroaching constantly encroaching hard work is a part of the curse notice i said hard work not work because god says by the sweat of your face that's all part of the curse See, work is not a curse. God had given work to, to the man in the garden. He was to keep it, and tend it, and look after it, and protect it, to help it to flourish. But man's now cursed, and, and as a result, work becomes hard to the point where we, we toil so hard we even sweat. Last we see part of the curse is decaying bodies. <laughs> Because God says, to dust you shall return. Remember, how did God make man? From the dust of the ground, God made man. 
Now to the dust we all return. And part of the curse is there's now agents and organisms everywhere that cause decay. Decomposition and disintegration were, were somehow injected into man's system. And so the, go- the ground resists man. And, 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 and in this struggle, we find that we are constantly the losers. Ultimately, we're the losers. We return to the ground from whence we came. And it's interesting, if you compare the first Adam with the second Adam, who of course is Christ, by the way, for Adam there was sorrow. But for Christ, Isaiah 53 says, He is the man of sorrows and acquainted with our grief. For Adam there were thorns. What did Christ do? Christ wore a crown of thorns. The very thing that was a part of the curse was the thing that He bore on His head. For Adam, there was sweat. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, Christ sweat great drops. For Adam, there was death. But Christ suffered death. Yes, but He didn't stay dead. He conquered death. Sorrow, thorns, sweat, and death. Think about that. All of those very things have been brought upon us through the fall of mankind into sin. And all these things Christ took upon Himself, all of them, sorrow, thorns, sweat, and death. So we can praise God today. There is coming a day, my friends, when there will be no more death, there will be no more sorrow, there will be no more crying, and there will be no more pain. Read Revelation 21. You say, why? Well, Christ took on Himself all the consequences of the curse, which, of course, you and I deserve because of sin. So because He took your place, you don't have to bear those consequences. At least not ultimately. And then number four, here's a part of the curse. They were driven from the presence of God. You see that? They're driven from the presence of God. That's the end result in verses 22 through 24. Driven out of the garden. So we see that Satan lies because they died spiritually. Because Satan said, you will not surely die. Yes, they did. They died spiritually. They began to die physically. And they were sentenced to die eternally. (coughs) So my friends, guilt is a universal problem. You say, what is guilt? (coughs) Excuse me. What is guilt? Guilt is legal liability to pay a penalty. It is every man's curse as he comes into this world due to Adam's sin. And and most people know this intuitively. They understand it it, to a certain extent. But they're puzzled by how to deal with that guilt. A lot of people want to know how to deal with the guilt. Don't know how to, though. And it's not surprising... Uh, for you know, Adam and Eve didn't know how to deal with their guilt either, did they? Uh, they sought to cover their sins rather than confess and forsake their sins. They're running from God instead of running to God. But you know what? We're no better. Modern man's no better in dealing with our guilt. Now, how does modern man seek to deal with his guilt? You, you need to understand this, so you, you're going to 
you need to know how to, how to deal with yourself and know how to help other people. How do you deal with guilt? Well, there's at least five ways. The first four are all wrong ways to deal with your guilt. <laughs> okay? Here's one of them, rationalizing. Rationalization, in other words, we, we tend to be blame shifters, like Adam does. Uh, God, it, you know, it's your fault because you're the one who gave me this woman. Right? And, and so in this approach, we view our problems as just a superficial thing. And if it's only superficial, you can rationalize it away. And this projection of blame to others is designed to somehow balance our guilt out. And, uh, but what does God want? God doesn't want us just to cover up our sin, cover up our problems and our guilt. He wants us to be cleansed of that guilt. And there's only one way to achieve that cleansing. A second way that we sometimes, mankind in general, deals with the guilt is compensating for it. You, compensation, in other words. Some people seek to pacify their violated conscience by doing good things. Right? So, uh, you know, if I... You know, if you're feeling guilty, give some money to charity or go volunteer for a charity or right, help help the, the old lady who's your neighbor or whatever it might be, right? But God's not interested in either religious or social cover ups. He wants us cleansed. He wants us cleansed. He doesn't want to cover up, and there's only way to achieve that. A third way is condemnation. Condemnation is a way that that mankind deals with their guilt sometimes. Some people attempt to deal with it by beating themselves to death emotionally. Not physically, but emotionally, right? Right? And they just constantly talk bad about themselves and so forth, right? And they punish themselves, but of course that never works. Another way, the fourth way, is occultation. <laughs> and you hear the word occult in there. Here's what happens. Because of guilt, some people have exposed themselves to Satan and the occult. How have they done this? Well, Satan loves using drugs is one way. Drugs is kind of an, an entrance into this world. It's a, and it's, a, it's, it's an escape from reality, and drugs get used to, to enter into a fantasy world. What do you do when you don't like reality? You escape, right? You, you try to escape from your reality. Does it work? No. <laughs> Sadly, chemically induced ecstasy is only going to produce more guilt. See, when you come off the high, you're still guilty. Uh, another way of escape that happens in our world is through rock music. Rock music is, is often this technique to pacify people's guilt. And many rock groups have even claimed, by the way, to derive their music uh, and, and even the lyrics themselves from Satan himself. They don't even hide it. Why? Because Satan does, he doesn't want you to deal with your guilt, at least not in God's way. He's quite happy for you to try to escape reality. And so those who listen to rock music, what do they do? What do you often notice they do? They to, to escape reality and, and kind of go into your own little fantasy world, they turn up the decibels to es try to escape reality. But listening to rock music is only going to make matters worse. The only solution is salvation. Salvation is the only way to deal with your guilt. See, your only hope 
And for this we need a gracious God. Because salvation comes from a gracious God. So here's a lesson I hope you learn, my friends. That when you see God's judgment, look for His grace. When you see God's judgment, look for His grace. You will see it if you're looking for it. And so Genesis 3 teaches not only does sin have consequences, but God is gracious. Now, I can only kind of highlight a few things here for you. So just just take take note as we go along. And as you study this passage, I hope you'll study it more at, at home that you find great cause for praise and gratitude to God here. Let me just highlight a few things. Number one, how is God gracious? Well, God is gracious by giving a call of grace to start with. He gives a call of grace. He's, he knows Adam and Eve has sinned. And God, so to speak, condescends to come down to these sinners in verse 9. And, and He calls out to the man and He says, where are you? Now God's not doing that because He somehow can't see Adam hiding behind a bush. <laughs> God sees everything. Of course He knows where Adam and Eve are. But nevertheless, He extends this call of grace. Now, why is God doing that? He wants Adam and Eve to come to Him, to to recognize their sin, and to come to Him in repentance, and, and to confess their sin, so that their problem can be dealt with. So it's a call of grace. In fact, the, the first call of grace in Scripture... Now I want you to notice, this is not like some policeman who is, who is seeking out a criminal here. And God's not sending out his attack dogs or you know, the helicopters and so forth to come after Adam and Eve here. Now, God is coming with the, the voice of a loving father who is seeking a lost son here. God's grace is seen in his seeking and his speaking. He hasn't destroyed Adam and Eve. He hasn't left them alone. He's he's coming to meet their needs. So God's justice, my friends, cannot overlook sin, right? A lesson to be learned here. Can't overlook sin. God's sorrow grieves over the sinner. He loves sinners. That's why He comes. But God's holiness seeks repentance. There must be a change of mind in regard to our sin. And God's love cannot be quenched here. Yes, God is love, and so He seeks out the sinner. Number two, God is gracious by giving good news. Look at verse 15. Look at this good news in verse 15. Wow. God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Here we have the first gospel sermon in the Bible. The preacher is God himself. The audience is a guilty, helpless pair of sinners. The subject of the sermon is the seed of the woman, who, of course, we're going to... I'll try to explain this in a moment, but who is the seed of the woman? See, if you don't understand this, you won't understand then why this is the first gospel sermon in your Bible. See, first of all, The seed would be, notice, it is the seed of the woman. Singular woman. That's significant language because 
Normally, offspring are spoken of as the seed of their fathers, right? Read the genealogies that we'll get to in chapter 5 and 11, right? It's always Adam begets so-and-so and Adam's son Cain begets so-and-so and so forth, right? You, well, that's the way it is. That's how it is normally. And so this seems to be a subtle reference to Christ's virgin birth because obviously Joseph was not Adam's father. So he became the God-man. Jesus Christ receives his second nature, his human nature. And in a sense, he was the offspring of a woman, but God was his only father. Second, there would be enmity enmity between him and the serpent, verse 15 says. So this signifies this continuous conflict between Satan and Christ. Yes, Satan opposes Christ. The evil one hates the Holy One and has himself and these demons going against the seed of the woman. Third, the seed of the woman would suffer, verse 15 says. Satan would bruise his heel. And so this speaks of when Christ was on the cross. Yes, he suffered on the cross, but it was just, in the scheme of things, a minor bruise. It was not going to do what it did to Satan. Fourth, the Savior would triumph. That's the good news. He would end this enmity forever. How did he do that? He did it by crushing the head of Satan. And Satan, the serpent here, did his best to destroy Christ. But in the end, it only left a bruise that would eventually heal. Christ arose from the dead in triumph gaining redemption for Adam's fallen race, and in the process destroyed the works of the devil. And in that act, he sealed Satan's final defeat. He crushed the serpent's head as he promised he would. And so in this verse here, war is declared on Satan, and his ultimate defeat is ensured. And we know how the end is. If you read the end of your Bible in Revelation 20, verse 1, it's on the screen here. It says, uh, this is the Apostle John. He says, I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then you jump ahead to verse 10. It says, The devil who had had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. They will be tormented day and night forever. So that's the end of Satan. Well, number three. How is God gracious? Even in the giving of a simple name, we see God's grace. See, Eve's name in the Bible says that she is the mother of all living. It's the first mention, by the way, of the woman's name here. And the name Eve uh, literally means life-giver. Life-giver. Adam apparently heard the promise of verse 15. He may have been very discouraged. I'm sure he 
must have been. He may have even been quite devastated as a result of all these consequences of sin. But he's not in despair because there was a promise from God and Adam believed God's promise. And that's why he calls Eve the mother of all living, this life giver. He knows there's there's a hope, they're going to have children, and eventually down the line somewhere will come a Savior. Number four, God is gracious by portraying redemption through Christ. You say, where is that? Well, it's in verse 21. Because notice Yahweh Elohim made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. We have a guilty pair. They stand condemned in the sentence of death before God. A sacrifice of blood had to be made. If you've ever skinned an animal, well, not a pleasant experience. But we see here that God's the first one to kill innocent animals. We have a stripping away of of their personal righteousness in the form of these these leaves. They're, They're trying to do things their way, not God's way. And so God strips that away and gives them something that's more enduring and better. A covering was made and and given here. And notice Adam and Eve did nothing to get it. Adam and Eve were totally passive in this situation. They had to stand there and watch death take place for the first time. As God kills those animals and makes clothing from the skin of those animals. See, that's the way it is for all believers in Christ. We're all passive as God does the work which we can't do for ourselves. See, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. For it's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So the lessons to be learned from verse 21 is, number one, to approach God. One must have a proper covering. See, the leaves didn't work. Man's way doesn't work. You must have God's covering. (laughs) And so the man-made covering was not acceptable to God. God Himself had to provide that covering. The proper covering required the shedding of blood. In other words, there had to be death. There had to be a sacrifice to cover man's sin. So God's grace provided for them, for the covering was given before they were even ex- expelled from the garden. Number five, God's gra- God is gracious by expelling man from the garden. You say, well, how is that? What? That's, that's gracious? Yes, it is. Think about this. We see, first of all, 22, though, that verse 22, then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. So, expulsion from the garden was based on real guilt, as we see in verse 22. Now, here's the problem, my friends. In one sense, Adam had become like God. Adam had, in this sense, he had become autonomous and independent. He was deciding for himself what was good and evil. But there's something else going on here. 
in a, in a deeper and a more tragic sense, he was also no longer like God. He was not like God. As a result, paradise is lost to man. But we see God's grace as he expels them from the garden. Expulsion from the garden is, is actually showing God's grace here. You see, the, the eviction was not only an act of punishment. God was actually protecting them. God was protecting them from the tree of life. Now, why would he do that? Because apparently the tree of life possessed some medicinal properties. Uh, apparently it was able to inhibit uh, cellular decay. And, and someone eating from the tree of life... Uh, would live forever. And so uh, to have eaten of that tree meant they would live forever in their sins. Well, that's not a grace. That's a tragedy. And so God in His grace says, no, you may not stay near the tree of life. And so to guard that tree, God sends them out, and then God sends one of His cherubim angels to guard the tree of life. So what have we seen? We see man separated from God that man is barred from God by the sword of justice, that man is incapable of returning to God. But the good news is God provided the way back to Himself. Jesus Himself said in John 14 that He is the way, the truth, and life. No man comes to the Father except through Him. But God provided the way back to the tree of life. Did you know the tree of life shows up in your Bible again? It's at the beginning and it's at the end. But only this time, the tree is not in a garden. That's not to say gardens are bad, but this time we see the tree is in a city. In fact, it's not just any city. The tree of life is in the New Jerusalem, which is the capital city of heaven. Let's read from Revelation 22, verse 1. Revelation 22, verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. And notice it says that the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There's still this healing property within the the leaves of that tree. Well, how do we see this happen? Well, look at verse 14. Verse 14 says, Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. My friends, not everybody's going to enter that city because of sin. God can't overlook sin. God can't allow sin into His holy presence. And so the only way that anyone, you or anybody else, gets into His heaven is for your sin to be dealt with. Because sin has disastrous consequences, as we've learned. But may I remind you, when you see God's judgment, look for His grace. Because God is also very gracious and merciful. So my friends, the only way that anyone gets into His heaven and will be able to partake of that tree of life, it's through a repentance of sin. It will only happen when your faith is put in the one who died for sin, the one who paid the penalty of 
sin. Of course, we're talking about the second Adam. So my friends, please understand, yes, there is consequences for sin. But God is always gracious. May you understand that glorious truth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for dealing with our greatest problem. We understand that there are consequences to sin, horrible results coming from this. Everything in your creation has been cursed. But we long, just as creation longs for the day when the curse to be removed. We know it's coming. May we believe it. May we live like it. We're thankful that you are a, a gracious God who, who sent your son, the second Adam, to deal with our greatest problem, to deal with the curse of sin, to deal with Satan, to deal with this world and, and, and the penalty of sin. We're thankful that there is victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, may we, may we know you. May it bring us great comfort. And may we love you and worship you in return. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.